I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. everybody and welcome to the latest edition of the World Football Index. Uh, as we mentioned on the last podcast, we're going to start a series um, around all of the World Cup stating we're going to start from 58 uh, and move forward. Um, as usual, I'm very thankful to say that uh, my co-host has returned for this podcast, uh, Armando Angulo. Um, he wasn't with us on the last one. Uh, it's very nice to have you back with us again t- tonight, Mando. How's things with you? They're great, Dave. Thanks. It's, it's a pleasure to be back. Uh, I'm sorry I missed last week. It was a little bit of hectic times personally for me, but uh, everything's back on track and it's great to be back. And I'm very excited for this, uh, especially with such a great guest. Indeed. And, and that brings me nicely into that. We have a very special guest tonight, uh, none other than Tim Vickery from the BBC. Um, he's a South American correspondent uh, for the BBC down here. He writes for a number of websites, which I'm sure he'll tell us about in a moment. Tim, it, it, it's an honour and a privilege to have you on the pod. Thank you so much for appearing. Proof. I think that intro is proof that you can fool some of the people all of the time. Lovely to be here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, absolutely delighted to have you on us. Hey, we, we've been trying to set this up for quite a while and it's come off. So listen, we're going to start with, with a look at the 1958 World Cup. Uh, it was the only World Cup in, in history that was, was won in, in Sweden on European so- soil by a non-European nation. Uh, it was also the World Cup that introduced us to uh, a boy who was to become a superstar in, in the form of Pelé. Um, and West Germany came into the, the tournament as, as, uh, as previous winners. Um, all the home nations, uh, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales were, were all making an appearance in the 58 World Cup. Um, it's quite poignant given, given Northern Ireland and Wales are now back in the, the major tournament scene. That, and, and for Wales, it was the one and only tournament they ever appeared in. Uh, and, and there was a little bit of controversy as well around the, uh, around the qualifiers. But um, I, want to, I want to go to Tim first here. And, and you, you know, when I, when I look back at this World Cup, um, the format was so different. Even, even the qualifying f- f- for the World Cup was nothing like we knew it. Uh, and in my research for it, I sort of felt that this was, in reality, this, this was a World Cup a bit like Italia 90 that, that, that revolutionized the game, modernized it a little bit in 1958. Um, you know, we saw the start of some tactics uh, being really deep rooted uh, where we hadn't seen before. Uh, and and the, the start of the game in the sort of modern idiom. Uh, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that, Tim? 
Well, I, I think you're right in, in, in terms of it being a turning point. And this is, this is the back four being introduced to modern football by Brazil. Um, but it, it also, I think you're right as well, it, it catches football in an early, very, very immature stage of, of globalisation. Um, and if you're not from Europe or South America, it's very dif- difficult to qualify. So it's, kind, it's, it's, it's mostly restricted to them. Um, it's also a, a strange moment because with 58, and this applies a little bit to 62 as well, although it applies more to 58, you know, who would you expect to be strong? You'd look at the European Cup. Which countries are doing well in the European Cup? It's Southern Europe. It's Spain and the coming forces of Portugal and Italy. They're not there. None of those nations are there in, in, in 1958. 1958 is before the real rise of professionalism in Northern European football. I know that West Germany are the world champions going into the defending champions going into 58, but West Germany at this time doesn't have a national professional league, nor does Holland. You're, you're, you're getting British football before the abolition of the maximum wage, uh, which led to, uh, I, I think, an increase in interest, an increase in quality, both probably technical and, and, and certainly in, in, in terms of, of intelligence, the thought process which is going into the game. So it, it's almost like virgin territory, I, I think. And, and, and uh, um, it, it, you're, you're also getting Central Europe still very strong. See that in '62 as well, you know, with, with Czechoslovakia reaching the final in '62, the first, this, the, and, and perhaps Central Europe now, it, now um, expanding a little bit to the east, with the first World Cup of the Soviet Union. But for Hungary, who'd been the trailblazers, it's two years after the political events in Hungary, which obviously had a detrimental effect on their national team. So it's almost kind of virgin territory for Brazil with organisation to walk in and declare themselves the new force in world football. No, absolutely. And, and you know, I think after the disaster of the 1950 World Cup for Brazil, um, you know, certainly from what I read, and, and, you know, I live in Brazil myself, Tim, you know, they said Brazil organized themselves, which is, which, which is a huge statement, uh, uh, to, to win these World Cups. They, they, they had focused themselves. They had, they had uh, superior backroom staff, doctors, dentists, dietitians, Everything was, was aimed towards, you know, building a team that was going to challenge and, and, and maybe win the World Cup. And I say that was off the back of the, the 1950 uh, disaster when they, when they lost at home. What, what are your thoughts around that, Tim, at, at that time? And, and, you know, basically around the backroom staff, that the planning that Brazil put into this? Yeah, I, I remember telling Mario Zagallo, who played obviously in the side of 58 and 62, he coached in 70. I told him that England went to the 62 World Cup without even a doctor. A player nearly died as a result. Uh, and, and Zagallo just couldn't believe it because he knew that Brazil's preparation was so much more advanced than that. It had almost really, it, it had become an affair of state. And Brazil had doctors, dentists, they even were experimenting light years ahead of their time and, 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 and way too much, too much ahead of their time, as it proved, with a sports psychologist. Uh, and, and quite extraordinary stuff, really. And, and it, it shows such an open-minded mentality, which I think is a, is a huge contrast to Brazilian football in recent years. I, th- I, th- I think, if anything, the story of Brazilian football over the last few decades has been a story of the perils of success and the way that uh, you, can, you can sometimes forget the things 
that made you successful? Once you start seeing success as a as, as a birthright rather than the result of a process, that's when you stop having success. And I think so much of that applies to Brazilian football at the moment. And one thing that they need to do is get back to the open-minded mentality that they had in the late 50s and the 60s. Tim, that's a very interesting point you make. And I'm going to go off on a tangent here um, because it's something that we've discussed on this podcast before. I'd be very, very curious to hear your opinion on it. Brazil seems to have this sort of xenophobia when it comes to appointing a foreign coach. Do you feel at this time, given the fact that Brazil's fall from grace, so so to speak, from the top table of, of international football, is now the time that they should be looking for a Guardiola, so, someone along those lines, to come in and educate the younger coaches who don't have that experience of big tournament football? I know this is often a tangent, but it, it's one that gets discussed here a lot. And it's totally relevant to 1958 because uh, Havelange was the man of Rio and Havelange's candidate, Havelange, the man who Havelange wanted as coach for the 1958 World Cup was a Paraguayan, Fleitas Solic, who uh, had just won the Rio Championship three years in a row with Flamengo. That was Havelange's candidate. But it was a tie-up between Havelange and Carlos Nascimento in Sao Paulo and Carlos Nascimento, who was uh, very associated, he was, a, he was a media magnate, he was very associated with Sao Paulo Football Club. He wanted Vicente Fiola, who'd been a coach um, at Sao Paulo. Uh, and uh, Avalanche knew the moment to give way, and so Fiola, uh, Fiola was the coach. But it could have been a Paraguayan, could have been Flater Solic. But from the point that Brazil win the World Cup, suddenly we don't need any of that anymore. Uh, and uh, yes, I mean, it, it, it's clear that Brazilian football has has fallen behind. I and mean, you see that, I think you see that more at club level than you do at international level because Brazilian domestic football, even with the financial problems of the clubs, it has a huge financial advantage over the rest of South America. And um, you can see that just by looking at the squads. Um, there are plenty of, uh, of high-profile Argentines, Uruguayans and so on, Chileans playing, Peruvians playing in Brazil. How many high-profile Brazilians can you think of playing elsewhere in South America? And I can probably think of one, a guy called Diogo, a left-back, who played for Brazil at under-20 level, dropped off the radar screen a little bit at the moment. He's at Peñarol in, in Uruguay. Um, so even with this financial advantage, Brazilian clubs are doing poorly in the Copa Libertadores, the Copa Sudamericana as well, although that, that, that's, I think, less of, of a measuring rod. But the last couple of years have been disastrous for Brazilian football, and you see, I know, for me, it's been it's been so clear in recent years. And one of the clearest uh, moments was when a Bolivian side came to Rio and played against Flamengo in the Libertadores. It was, it was Bolivar, and were much more tactically modern and compact than than the Brazilians were. Uh, and uh, so clearly, Brazilian football needs to take a long, hard look at itself. And one thing that it needs to do is get new ideas in. Now, Brazilian football, it's a huge country. So it's a little bit like turning around an oil tanker. And I don't think just putting in a Guardiola in at the top of the, the process to coach the national team is enough. You're talking about wholesale changes all the way down the line. But yes, someone to come in and, and or, or someone or, or, or plenty of people to come in and groom the next generation of coaches uh, is is absolutely necessary because uh, 
Um, if you look at Argentina, there's a new generation of coaches coming through. In Brazil, that that seems less to be the case, and you've still got an old guard uh, who are who are boasting about how many state championships that they won, and that that I'm afraid in this day and age is an absolutely irrelevant uh, title. No, you're absolutely right on that. Uh, and, and, you know, there's the, the talk of the breakaway, uh, the Cup of the Soul um, there, which was discussed on this as well. It, it's just, it's, uh, Brazilian football for me is like a sleeping giant. As I say, I've lived in the country here for five years. Um, and I must admit, I, I thought I was going to come here and see something special. And I've been desperately disappointed in it. And, and especially whenever I, I read about how innovative the Brazilians were in, in 58 and 62, that they can't, recapture that spirit they can't move forward with it and you know this this is a football country and and for my money i grew up with it uh child of the 60s you know i grew up with the great brazil sides and and it's just it's a travesty that they are where they are in world football at the moment well you've i'm sure you've seen in this five years how defensive they can be how they can uh, they, they can react badly to uh to the, the kind of, of questions and suggestions that that you are raising, and uh, it is, I think, uh, for me, I see this as a, as a huge cautionary tale of the dangers of success, because in the process of being successful, they were open-minded and in, innovative, and all of that seems to have seems to have have, have gone by the board. Um, winning five five World Cups is almost like a millstone around around their neck now, because I think the moment has come to start from scratch. No, I hear you, and and you know, I I, I wonder, you know. Politically, even in the country, you know, we we had a, a period of, of of dictatorship, and then we became a democracy, uh, and and with that democracy, you know, there, there almost like protectionism in every aspect of, of Brazilian life. There's protectionism in 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 commerce, in everything, and and even to the degree of of you know outsiders, estrangeros coming here, where there, there's not equal opportunity basically, and they seem to just protect everything. Yes, it's 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 a country which I think does have a, a problem of of self-esteem and does feel threatened. I mean, most countries are, are built on myths. I wrote a column about this for BBC Brazil recently. How, for my old man, the Battle of Britain, you know, that that's that's the moment that he built his his British or English patriotism on. You know, that we stood alone against the Nazis. Well, it's hardly a, a representative moment of, of of English foreign policy, is it? You know. It was a glorious moment, but it's not really representative. And also, the we stood alone thing is, is a little bit of a myth because uh, the country was an empire at that, at that stage. So uh, standing alone meant you were standing together with millions of Indians. So, uh, you know, but th- that was the myth on which he based his patriotism. Uh, and uh, th- there's a myth on, on which lots of Brazilians base their patriotism that they are victims of, of colonization. Uh, Brazil is a country largely of colonizers, especially at the higher social levels. They're not victims of, of, of colonization at all, but they love to roll this one out. Uh, and, uh, you know, and you, you often see people with Italian surnames criticize. Do, do you remember the journalist from Scandinavia? I think it was Norway, Norwegian or something who uh, was building up for the, for, the, for the World Cup. He based himself in Fortaleza. And he decided to go home before the World Cup because he decided that the World Cup wasn't, wasn't good for Brazilian society and he didn't want to be part of it anymore. So he went back home to Norway or somewhere in Scandinavia. And he got a torrent of abuse from, from some Brazilian, journal, you know, Brazilian journalists with, with, with Italian surnames, criticizing him for, for, for being a, 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 you know, a thing of European imperialism. Um, so there's, there's, there's that myth 
a lie, really, right at the heart of, of Brazil, who they are. And the Nelson Rodriguez uh, um, mongrel complex, there's something in it. There is something in it, you know, as a country which, which lacks self-esteem. But the idea that the Brazilian was going to feel inferior to European because the European had all of, all, all of you know, the centuries of culture behind it, well, the, the Brazil, a large part of the Brazilian population, especially at the point when, when Nelson Rodriguez came up with, a, with a, the, the mongrel complex, were, were European-born or, or very recently European-descended. So there, 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 there's a fragile myth, I think, at the heart of Brazilian nationalism. No, I, and, and, and nowhere is it more apparent than the northeast where I live. You know, it, it is very, very apparent. And, and you, you know, you, you say that they view uh, Europe as so superior. And, and, and there's times, you know... It's very difficult to put your message across because, without, in the absence of them actually being there and experiencing Europe, it's very, it's a very, very difficult point to, to make um, to, to, to Brazilians. But let's let's get back on topic. I'm going to pass over to Armando. I, I think he has a question for you, Tim. Yeah, Tim. I actually wanted to uh, ask about the seeding back in in the '58 World Cup and how it was done geographically and how that attracted some criticism. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on how the seeding was? Western European pot, Eastern European, a British pot, and American pot. What are your thoughts on how that is? That, how that was then and how it's evolved to now. Well, we, we, we've just defended Europe. Now, now, now is the time to to to, uh, to go onto the onto the attack because uh, this. The way that the whole qualification thing was organised uh, is the the uh, it is very very Eurocentric and behind the times. Um, at the end of the Second World War, FIFA uh, more more than half of the membership of FIFA was European. By 1974, when Europe lost control of FIFA, Europe had less than a third of the membership of FIFA. Why? Because you've got that massive decolonization process where so many new independent nations are created and many of these new independent nations see football as a vital weapon not only of foreign policy but also of, of internal policy a new a rallying point the national football team as a rallying point for a new national identity of a new nation and it, it, it's very very hard for these nations to get to the top table of world football because uh, the, the African Cup of Nations, for example, it starts in 1957. It's the big moment, the newly independent African nations launching their own football thing. How much encouragement do they get from the top table? None whatsoever. How many places in 58 and 62 are reserved for teams from outside Europe and South America? Almost none. Almost none. It's the big missed opportunity. And uh, the way that the, that the whole qualification process is organized at that time is a key factor behind the election of Joao Havelange in 1974 because Havelange came in very much on a pro-developing world ticket where he promised um, more places in the World Cup for the developing world, more places especially for Africa and Asia. Uh, and, uh, and and Avalanche really promised three things: to to expand the World Cup from 16 to 32. He promised to to launch World Cups at under 17 and under 20 level that could be staged in a, in a developing world. And he promised to sell a product called football and distribute the proceeds around all of the member nations. Now he kept good on that promise, as did his successor, 
Sepp Blatter. And uh, the reason that they were able to do it with all of the crony capitalism that, that has come with it, with all of the playing the till on the piano, on the, on the cash register, that is playing the piano on the cash register that has come with, with, with that, the reason that they were able to do it, you can see that in the, in the, 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 the qualification process for the World Cups that preceded, um, preceded that. Back in 58, 62 and 66, as late as 66, there's not even an automatic qualifying place for Africa. It's, it's one for both Asia and Africa combined. So you're seeing there the, 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 the bitterness beginning to build and, and football going to change, which, which it did with the election of Havilland in 1974. You're seeing it in the way that the, quali- the, the qualification is, uh, is being organised for these World Cups. And, and you're seeing the upper echelons of FIFA and the, uh, the, the, the presidents in the early, from the early 60s, uh, Stanley Rouse, very, very uneasy about the, the idea of one member, one vote. Very uneasy about it because the fear that Europe is going to lose power. So, so much of what has happened afterwards could have been averted had the, the leadership been more inclusive back in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. Wow, that's very interesting. Uh, yeah, like you said, it's, it's absolutely, you know, mind-blowing to me. Uh, this is way before my time, but mind-blowing to me that there's only one nation outside of Europe and, and South America, and that's my beloved Mexico. So, wow, this is, that's just a lot of information to take in. That's not really what I expected. And yeah, it's all politics, and that makes perfect sense. That's just insane. Well, that, that helps explain. And the thing that, certainly on the press in my native country, England, they never seem to understand the support that Asia and Africa have consistently given to Havilland and Blatter. They've never, they either seem to dismiss this as an irrelevance or they say it's all down to corruption. There is lots and lots of corruption and lots and lots of crony capitalism. There's corruption. On all sides, we, we hear um, that the talk of, of, of West Germany using corruption to win the 2006 World Cup. So it's not just a third world developing world story. But I think that there's an expression that we have in Brazil, which I think is, is a fantastic expression. It's the people who give out the beating never remember it. The people who are on the end of a beating, they never forget it. And part of the reason for the continued support that Havilland and Blatter enjoyed from Asia and Africa is because they remember when they used to get a beating from, from the leadership of FIFA. They remember when the only issue in African football that seemed to be of interest to the president of FIFA was support for apartheid white South Africa. They remember those days. You know, a lot of old men still, still running football. And uh, I don't think that the Football Association in my country, in my native country in England, have ever, ever really got to grips with this and the need to disassociate themselves from the errors of the past in order to win the battles of the future. No, that's very, very interesting, Tim. You know, I'm, as part of this, you know, you're talking about the politics of it all. There's quite an interesting story from the qualifying stages of, of the 58 World Cup as well in regards to the Israeli team who were drawn in a group with Turkey, Indonesia and Sudan. Um, the three teams refused to play um, against Israel. Indonesia accepted, but only at a neutral venue, which FIFA uh, declined. In the end of it all, Israel were given a free pass 
and they decided to, to, to vote or uh, have a draw to see which of the qualifying nations played a one-off qualifier against Israel. It, it happened to be Wales who, who won and progressed to the tournament. But even back then, the, the, you know, the politics of it all was still apparent within FIFA. Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a highly political post, um, the, uh, the, the president of FIFA, because you know, football is such a mechanism by which people can feel represented. The game is so simple, but also so complex. You know, the man on the ball has so many options, what he can do with the ball. And obviously, the way that the option that he chooses, it's, it tells you a lot about who he is. Uh, and and so you know with, with all of the, the, this range of movements, the range of options, that means that people can feel represented through football more than they can, I think, through through any other sport, and that gives football a huge political importance. No, absolutely, and and you know as the game has grown, obviously that importance ha- has grown alongside it. Um, listen, we'll, we'll get into the tournament a little bit, um, and and you know it was it was you know the game against the USSR that that. that Brazil gave debuts to, to, to both Pele and Garincha, um, two magnificent players. Uh, and, and certainly here in Brazil, Tim, uh, when, when I speak about these teams, the old teams, some of the older people here would tell me that Garincha was a much better player than, than, than Pele. What, what, what's your thoughts on that, given the amount of time you've been here? Yeah, I think it, it's, it, it's ludicrous. Um, and they're obviously absolutely fantastic. Uh, and Garincha really showed that more in 62, I think, when Pele was injured. When he he did so much more than than just be a right winger, he played from the right wing rather than than, than on on the right wing. But Gahincha's career is basically fifty five, fifty six maximum to the end of sixty two. After the knee operation in sixty two, he's he's he doesn't really do anything in the game at all. Although he tried to uh, to, to carry on, so it's 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 basically six seven years absolute top whack seven years. Whereas Pele, um, you know, you've got there from 57 when he makes his debut against Argentina, scores, and the Argentine captain, Nestor Rossi, says this Pele is, is going to be a sensation. You've got him from that until until the early 70s. So, it, it, you know, the, the, the career of Pele is is twice the uh, the duration of, of the career of Gahincha, as well as the fact that Pele was the Gahincha of 62, over a much longer uh, space of time as, as well. Um, I, I feel a, a lot of kinship between Gahincha and George Best. You know, the, the idea that, uh, that that some come up with that George Best was, was, was the world. No, obviously, an absolutely fantastic player and a genius, but it's basically 63 to 69, 70. Uh, you know, six, seven years and, and not a lot afterwards. And, and Gahincha, is, I think, is, is, is the same thing. Pele, Maradona... They kept it going for much, much longer. So I, th- I think that they're, they're just on a, on a different level. No, it's funny you mentioned Best because I was going to come in with that. Yeah. It's uh, obviously I'm from there, so it's, he's, he's one of my favourites. And, and you know, I had the privilege of actually watching him play as a child, and it, it's, it's a memory that, that's been sort of everlasting for me. Um, but uh, you know, I, I mentioned best a lot here in my conversations with Brazilians about football and I think you hit the nail on the head there Tim with the fact Pele is judged on the length of his career and what he achieved. Garincha was a much much smaller, you know, they even look at Maradona the same way here in Brazil I'm sure you've encountered this as well uh, in your time here that Maradona's career wasn't as long as it should have been. He can't be considered in the same breath as Pele because of... of, on, on, On Maradona because, you know, Maradona is... Yeah, Maradona is just as long as as, as Pele, and uh, all right, he got kicked out 
he, he took a shortcut just to get his weight down. It's in in, in terms of drug offences, it, it's it's by no means the most serious. But he did take that challenge of ninety four, which Pele ducked in seventy four. All right, he did it illegally in the end. But you know, there's not a lot of difference in the duration of careers of of of, of Pele and Maradona. And I think it, it it's that that puts the two of them together with with, with De Stefano up on a, up up on a, a different planet. No, absolutely. And, 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 you know, it doesn't really matter how long you play the game. If you're at the very, very top of it and you give us something special, as Garincha and, and Bess both did, you know, something very, very special. I'll never forget the memory of it anyhow. Um, you know, it, it's just more, something... A more modern one would be Ronaldinho, wouldn't it? Because Ronaldinho really you know, hasn't done very much since 2006. He's lived off his name since 2006. But what he did in those three years, perhaps, was absolutely phenomenal. And he still loved all over the world for what he did a decade ago. No, absolutely. And again, he's, he's been, been the topic of this podcast on a couple of occasions recently. Uh, and just along those lines, Tim. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Of, you know, he's only, what, 35, 36. There's still, you know, when you look at the Pirlo's of this world, the Gerrards of this world who are still going in the MLS, we just don't feel that Ronaldinho hasn't left in him, whether it's the heart, whether it's the legs have gone. You know, he just seems to be enjoying the party scene a little bit more than the football scene. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. And I, I think the secret to him, it, it, it's rank amateur psychology, but I've always thought that the secret to him was, um, you know, his, his brother was a, was, was a child star, Assis, whose brother is now, is now his manager. Uh, and when his brother signed the first big contracts with Gremio, and he, his brother was saying, even then, my seven-year-old little brother, Ronaldinho, he's the true star of the family. Uh, Assis was saying that even then. Uh, anyway, Assis signed his first contract with Gremio, and as a result, the family moved out of the poor periphery of, of Porto Alegre to a plush neighbourhood with a swimming pool, and their father went for a dip in a swimming pool, hit his head and drowned. And I, I've always thought that in Ronaldinho has provoked a, a strong feeling of the precariousness of life. You know, enjoy yourself. It's lighter than you think. You know, <laughs> tomorrow might not come. So let, let's enjoy yourself today. And I, I'm sure that that's at, the, that's at the heart because from a logical point of view, you think, you know, 
play till you're 35, give it your all, and you can spend the whole rest of your life partying as much as you want to. But he can't live that way. No, and, and, and I think the press here are, are quite unkind to him at times. You know, that there, there's, there's plenty of sort of candid photographs taken of him with, uh, in several sort of party locations. And, uh, and there was a story as well that, was, that was, uh, came on the podcast here about him uh, sneaking around rooms in the middle of the night in a hotel in Rio during the Libertadores uh, preparation. You know, it, it, is, it is such a shame because he is, you know, uh, as, as Brazilian treasures uh, go, he really was a very, very special player. And it's just so sad to see him go down that way. Well, that's the big question, isn't it? isn't it? Should we be grateful to him for, for what he gave us or should we be angry with him because it, 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 it didn't last? I, I don't know the answer. I, I vary between the two. No, I'm very happy that, that, that I saw what I saw from him. I'm just saddened that it ended, it ended too soon. I don't think anger would come into it, um, you know, each to their own and so on in, in today's world. Armando, you know, do you want to move it on here to, to the next segment? Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to ask about Brazil and in the group stages. They had the Soviet Union, England and Austria, and that was, you know, experts considered that going into it probably one of the toughest groups uh they they had the highest average attendance in those games even higher than the host sweden so that shows the the you know the appeal of brazil and stuff even from early on and the sensation that is pele so my thing my question would be tim um obviously brazil went through and and they won the group with their five points but do you think that that was what everyone expected going into that for Brazil to be top, or or do you think that uh, their easy progression in the group was was a uh, was a surprise per se? There's a saying over here that in order to be world champions, Brazil have to be booed by their own crowd before, and uh, that's that happened to Brazil, and they they qualified with difficulty um, against Peru. It wasn't easy, and uh, there wasn't a lot of faith. In the, in the side going into the World Cup. And it was, you're right, a very, very difficult group. And um, there, there was huge fear of the Soviet Union. And after the nil-nil draw with England, nerves are beginning to, are beginning to, to, to rack up. You know, so that, that, that game against the Soviet Union um, with their scientific football that no one had seen in a World Cup before. You know, this is the time of Sputniks and so on. It's a time of, of, of the, the idea of the Soviet Superman. It's, I've been reading a lot of social history um, around that time recently, and it's amazing. It was, an, it was almost a consensus that the Soviet system was better than the Western system, uh, and uh, they would out, outperform the West economically um, because of rational planning in a, in a, in a, in a short period of time. And even people on the sen- in the centre of the political spectrum thought that. And, and uh, there was a lot of that around their football as well. So that, that's, that's a real nervy occasion, that the last match in the group after the, the, the draw with England, the last match being, being against the Soviet Union. But as, as we've already heard, that's when they decided to, uh, to unleash Pelé and Gahincha. And those first few minutes of, of Gahincha, when he just took the defence to pieces is probably the moment when Brazil begin to pick up the momentum that's going to take them all the way to the, to the title. Oh, that's very interesting. I wanted to ask also in this group, England, how, how, how badly were they affected by the Munich air disaster? Oh, massively, massively. And I, I, I know people. I, I was born in 65, so uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see any of those who died, but I know people who did. And, and uh, you know, the idea that, that Duncan Edwards w- was going to be the powerhouse of English football for, for more than a decade, the, um, you, you'll still find uh, educated judges will say he, he was the best 
English player who's ever lived, um, together with with a, with a number of others. So it was a, a massive blow to uh, to to the England team, and um, surprising perhaps that, that Brazil weren't able to beat them. No, absolutely, and 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 that's a credit to England definitely and their resolve, and 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 that was probably a great result for for the nation. I mean, under the circumstances, definitely. Uh, but let's move on into the knockout stages and the quarterfinals. Brazil was uh, drawn with Wales. We had France, Northern Ireland, Sweden, Soviet Union, and West Germany. The defending champs got Yugoslavia. Um, we'll start off with uh, the Yugoslavia-West uh, Germany match. And how, how favored were West Germany going into this tournament? I know they were champs, but really how favored is... What's the perspective on how favored they were really? I don't think they were massively favored because... Uh... I think everyone knew that they were a little bit lucky to to have beaten Hungary in the final four years earlier, uh, and uh, as we were saying earlier on, you know the country didn't have a didn't have a, a real genuine professional league at, at the time. So um, I, I don't think that they were seen as the unbeatable forces going in going into into, uh, into this World Cup. It is interesting. The power at that time, you know, Hungary was st- still a force at that time and still really a force until 66, I suppose. Um, interesting how strong that central European air- area is, you know, with Czechoslovakia reaching the final four years later, Yugoslavia still around and the Soviet Union, of course, stretching it a little bit further east. It, it, is, uh, it is really striking how important that it, that that part of the world still was. You you wouldn't give that part of the world anything like the same importance these days. No, absolutely, uh, Dave. Do you have anything you want to add, man? No, it's just a point I would like to make to to, to Tim. You know, whenever when you look at the results of these games, this was the first world or the last World Cup where we had over three goals per game average. And and if we look at at the top scorer of of, of the tournament was just Fontaine, and you know he had thirteen goals. In in you know in one World Cup, which which in today's world is is, is unthinkable, uh, and you know you look at this Brazil team as they progressed through, you know they they they, they sneak past Wales one nil, you know France beat Northern Ireland four nil um, in the quarters, Brazil then trounced France five two, um, uh, you know and this is the France team who they went then went on in the third place playoff to to beat West Germany six three. You, you know, it, it sort of tells it tells a tale of the World Cup th- those series of results. Would you agree? Yeah, yes, I would. Um, the The only drawback I would would use about the France game was that uh, that Vava broke the leg of of a French centre half um, relatively early in the game, and I think that 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 made things a lot lot easier. And clearly, defensive standards are nowhere near what they would become in the near future. You know, Brazil are, are showing the importance of cover, the importance of, of, of a back four. Uh, so that they've, they've got themselves well covered and, you know, Brazil don't concede a goal until they meet the, uh, the, the free-scoring French in the, in the semi-final. So, you know, the, the way that, that Brazil are defending is beginning to point the way towards, uh, towards a future where goals are, are harder to come by. No, and absolutely, and, and if you wind that forward to 2015, they've gone the opposite direction um, entirely. You know, it, it's almost like they, you know, they're, they're forgetting about the defence at the moment. It's all about attack. Um, you know, that that game against France, I think, was was really the, the the sort of catalyst for them moving forward in the tournament and the win. You know, I think after they beat the French, 
Um, the, okay, they were playing the host Sweden in the final, but you know they made a mess of them five two as well. You know this was a really, really, really good Brazil team. Yeah, but let let's not skate over the quarter final against Wales because that's a, that's a vital, vital game. Um, difficult game, you know. Wales putting up really stern resistance. No substitutes in those days. And uh, up in the, the press box, there's Leonidas, big idol, biggest idol Brazilian football had ever, ever produced up to that point, the top scorer of the 1938 World Cup. And he's looking down at the 17-year-old Pelé, and he's saying Pelé has to be dropped from the team. And uh, who comes up with the goal, the vital goal that, breached, that finally breaches the, the, the Welsh defence? The 17-year-old Pelé. And he often says... That's the most important goal of his career because that's the one that kept him in the team and gave him the confidence to go on and be Pelé. And let's imagine that he hadn't scored that goal. Brazil could have gone out. And, and how different the history of world football might have been had Wales prevailed at the expense of Brazil. Well, I, no, I, I, I have a soft spot for the Welsh, but I have to agree on this occasion. You know, I, I, I couldn't disagree with that at all. You know, I, I wouldn't not want to see what, what Brazil produced then in, in the later years. Um, you know, do, do, do you have much information on, on the actual final itself? I know these games were played. You know, if, if you look through um, the information you have, some of these games were very very poorly attended, sometimes below 12,000 spectators and so on. Um, you know, even for, for a World Cup final, I think the World Cup final only had something in the region of 50,000 odd, or tell a lie, it was under 50,000. It was 49,700. We're, we're, we're at that, you know, and it gives, you, gives us an idea. Also, there was another aspect that I found in it, that there was only one televised game per round, you know, and, you know, the podcast go out and there's a lot of a lot of younger listeners here who, who live on this solid diet of football one game per round of matches was televised in europe it was a completely different world yeah and well back in brazil you didn't you didn't get that you got the videotape arriving on a plane a cup maybe the day after or two days after the game so it was it was lived on radio football that, that that's true until the world cup of 1970 and it was almost like a it's almost like a religious moment when the videotape of, of a big brazilian victory came back and you know you'd be be escorted from the plane and and and, you know, and and taken and then broadcast in cinemas and copied and then broadcast in, in in cinemas and so on and then people could go and see it and match the images to the wonderful pictures painted by the great brazilian brazilian uh, radio journalists um radio is absolutely vital in, in Brazilian football, you know, our football back in Britain, Dave, it developed organically before radio, before mass electronic media. And we tended to be a little bit suspicious of, of radio when it came along. But in Brazil, it's radio which is taking football all over and, and where, where you're living, somewhere in, in the northeast. And the reason that Flamengo of Rio are one of the most popular sides, even in your part of the world, is because, you know, Rio was the capital and Flamengo acquired the popular touch and it was radio taking their games all over this giant country. So, you know, people who've never never got near Rio will be Flamengo supporters because of radios. So, you know, th 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 this, th these are the days of a nation gripped round, round its radios following the news from, from Sweden. Wow, that's really interesting, uh, especially the fact that, you know, like you said, 
they had to get the tapes had to get flown over and seen two days later. That's just unthinkable uh, right now at this stage where we are now. I, I wanted to go back a little bit, and you talked about Pelé scoring that big goal against Wales and how it spurred him on and spurred the team on in his career. Really, he he went on against France and, and scored a hat trick, and then he got a brace against Sweden in the final. So really, that goal, like you said, was the making of Pelé and really the making of Brazil. And and he went on to win the the, the young player of the tournament award and and the question i'll pose to you is how valued was he at that time and how much did people really expect him to take off after this oh i think it was it was it was obvious you know scoring big goals quarterfinal semi-final final that you're dealing with an absolute phenomenon and in the following years as he filled out i think it was then clear to everyone that you were dealing with with someone from a from, from a different planet almost, on someone who was years ahead of his time in terms of his own physical preparation. Um, but also, I think one of the great ironies here is that the name of Pelé is so associated with the World Cup, but I don't think that the World Cup ever saw him at his best. Um, it saw him in 1958 when he was uh, a wonderfully exuberant kid with it all in front of him. Saw him in 1970 when he knows all the tricks, but physically... He's bulked up. He's heavy. He doesn't run with the ball in the way that he did in his prime when he's running with the ball. And the ball, it's not like Messi or Maradona, you know, with a ball tied to that left foot. When Pele was in full command, I always see the, the, the ball as a little puppy that's bouncing up and down very obediently just in front of him. Uh, and um, the moments, I think, where Pele could have had what Maradona had in 86 was in Chile in 62, because there he is 21, but a very old 21 in football terms. He's seen it all. He's done it all. He's filled out physically. He's in magnificent shape. And of all the goals that he scores in the World Cup, the one that he scored in the first game, unfortunately, against your lot from Mexico, I think it's the greatest thing that he did in a World Cup, Pelé, that goal. If you watch that goal, it's available on YouTube. You're seeing an absolute footballing force of nature. He's just driving through the Mexican defence using all of the skills, using pace, power, ball control, right foot, left foot, directness, coolness in front of goal. It's a magnificent goal, a magnificent piece of football. But of course, in the next game against Czechoslovakia, he gets injured and, and plays no f- further part of the tournament. And in 66, he's kicked out of it. So th- th- that, for me, is one of the great ironies about, uh, um, about Pelé. We always link his name with the World Cup, but he, you know, he, 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 the, the tournament didn't quite see him at his best. And he will tell you that his greatest performance came later that year in 1962 um, in the, the old World Club Cup when it was Europe and South America home and away, away to Benfica, when he just ran riot. Um, that we, we could have seen that in Chile 62 had he not been injured. No, that's uh, that's incredible info. Listen, uh, you know, Pele gets all the plaudits. And, and before we go to the World Football Index Top 100, I, I just want to pose this question to you, Tim. Vava was the other striker uh, in that team. And, and from what I'm reading and my research on this, would lead me to believe that, that he was a much more valuable member of the squad that, than he was ever billed. Um, by all intents and purposes, you know, he finished the tournament with five goals, some of which were very, very important in, 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 in the tournament. And, and he never really gets the plaudits um, the same way as Garincha and, and Pelé. What, what would be the reason for that? It's difficult for so, so many stars to, to shine. You know, for you, they may, may, may be another star, but for but through my eyes, the light of you is all I see, as Stevie Wonder said it. Um, Pele was a very lucky man, and he 
he joined Santos, and Santos is is in comparison with the metropolis of Sao Paulo, which it's you know an hour outside. Santos is a relatively small city. Um, Santos had only once been champions of Sao Paulo State until I think 1955, the year before Pele joins. But Pele joined a Santos side that was great, and it's much much easier for the young player to slot in to a great team where he doesn't have to carry the team. And that's what Pele had at club level with Santos when he was starting out. And it's also what he had at international level because he came in to a side that's full of terrific players. Uh, the two fullbacks for Brazil. But, you know, let's go down the middle of the team because that, 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 that middle of the team is always so important. And one of the centre-backs there in, in 58, Orlando, Orlando, Orlando Pessanha, a legend. Hard as nails, classy as well. Then you've got the central midfield duo. You've got Zito, recently passed away. Now, there was a really hard man, but someone who could really play alongside Gigi, who had that glorious range of passing. Maybe the best player of, of the 58 World Cup. And then you've got the centre forward, Vava. Now, Vava has gone down in history as being a battler, as, as, being, a, as being someone who uh, perhaps wasn't a great player, but had a real strong heart, Great figure to get on the end of Gahincha's crosses because he was so strong and so brave. I think Vavar was a little bit more. I remember talking to uh, to the great Zizinho, who was Brazil's best player in the 1950 World Cup a few years ago. And he told me that Vavar played in the Olympics in 52 as the midfield playmaker and was very, very skilled and talented in that role. He was converted into a centre-forward initially against his will, Vavar. He didn't want to be centre-forward, but he, he ended up liking it. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he had that bravery and that capacity to, uh, to, to, to do the business in where it hurts, as my, old, as, a, as my old man used to say. But he could play as well. So Pelé, all around him, he's got a structure that allows him to flower. Uh, and had he been in, in a much, much weaker side, I think the, the, the story might have turned out very differently. No, that, that and again, that, that's that's very very interesting. Um, you know, as I say, he's a player. Vava is someone I don't really know a great deal about. Um, there's not a great deal online there to, to be watching about him. And that's the sad part, unfortunately, of these World Cups mm. is is that there, there's so little there to, to use as a reference point. So little for 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 younger kids today to to, to go back and look at these players who who were great in their era. Uh, and, and I think it's, it just it just saddens me that there's not a greater greater deal of coverage to 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 go on. But listen, I want to move into to the top 100, the WFI top 100, where we nominate a player still playing the game, any level of, of the game that just impresses you and you like. And I'm very curious, Tim, to, to, to see who you've picked out for us for this. Right. So sorry, it, it's a player who's who's current today, who, who's still still playing yeah, today. I, for example, I added Rivaldo a few weeks back because he because he's still active. Uh, wonderful player. Um, it, it can be any level of the sport. I also added Kyle Lafferty from the Northern Ireland squad for his efforts at uh, the twenty six qualification. So it, it's just you know, with your knowledge of of South America, I'm sure that you, you, I'm sure you could pick a hatful. <laughs> but we're only going to ask you to pick one. Well, I'm going to go against uh, against against me Tottenham grain. And I'm going to go for for someone who plays for our great rivals, which is uh, Alexis Sanchez. Um, is, is he? He hasn't hasn't been placed in your top 100 already, has he? Not as yet, no. Right. So uh, put him in the box, please. Um, I very very nearly bought an Alexis Sanchez mask. Uh, 
um, during the Copa America outside one of the stadiums. It was a very fine mask, and I very nearly bought it. And then I remembered who he plays his club football for, and uh, I would get very limited shelf life from it. But he, he's a player that I, I, I like very much. Um, and the, the great privilege, privilege of, of what, I'm, what I do is, is the fact that I can catch them young and watch them on the way up. And, and Alexis is a player I've been watching and enjoying since 2006. And it was instantly obvious that there was really something there. You've got a player who's absolutely fabulous in one-against-one situations. And as he's grown, he's got that thing that the supporter loves, which is his work rate and so on, and the capacity to produce memorable moments. But as he's grown, I think he's become more intelligent, more able to use his skills where they can do harm to to the opponent. And I kind of loved watching him during the Copa America in Chile. He didn't have a very good tournament. He had a very frustrating tournament, actually. Um, and, and part of it was that he was just trying too hard. You know, Chile had never won uh, a major title. And this was their moment. And it was Alexis' moment. And I think he was straining too hard. He had, he had a couple of goals uh, harshly ruled out for offsides and so on. Nothing was quite going his way, not even in the final. But then the final went to a penalty shootout. Now, Alexis Sanchez is taking Chile's fourth penalty. You wouldn't expect it to be the decisive one. It just so happened that it was, because Argentina missed a couple. So when Alexis came up to take the fourth penalty for Chile, if he scores, Chile are champions. Uh, and uh, what's he do? He goes for the little panenka dink down the middle. Hadn't trained it at all, according to the coach, Jorge Sampaoli. He hadn't done it in training, but he just, he just sees the moment because I'm sure he's aware. Now, this is Chile's first title. Every time images of, of Chile's first title are played on, on, on the TV anywhere around the world, that's the image that people will see. So although he didn't have a great tournament, he kind of stole the day at the end with that little panenka dink. And I love that sense of drama. I thought that that, that, that was terrific. A wonderful player. Um, you worry about him burning himself out because uh, he, he does put himself through, through uh, um, so, much, so much hard work. But a wonderful player and I would hope a worthy, uh, a worthy addition to your index. It, oh, indeed it is. And, and I think for Armando and I, we, we, we look at Alexis Sanchez with a little bit of heartbreak because we're Liverpool supporters. And uh, it's a bit of a sore subject with us uh, that, that we missed out on him because the difference he would have made, um, you know, replacing Luis Suarez would have, would have been immense in that Liverpool team of, of the season past. But sadly, it, it wasn't to be. I think he's a, a very, very, very worthy addition to him. Um, Armando, who have you got for us this week? Uh, for me, I'm going for one of my childhood heroes, uh, somebody that when I first started watching football, I fell in love with uh, Serie A and my team was Roma back in the day. And uh, and Francesco Totti, uh, for, just for his, his loyalty, you know, his love for the game, the fact that he's still there, he's passionate leading his club and he's just a tremendous ambassador for the game and, and for Italy and, and for, you know, football in general. And, and Francesco Totti is somebody that I really looked up to from a young age and continue to. And, and I know that, you know, his games are limited now and his, his days are not numbered as a professional footballer but it's just something that i want to enjoy and continue to enjoy for as long as i can to be honest no and i hear you you know that it's very much like the gerard thing he's a one one club uh man and and, and that's that loyalty is very very hard to find uh, alone in world football an excellent addition i'm going to go very quickly for miroslav Klose. um the, you know the all-time tops goal scorer at world cup finals 
he does everything that's, that's asked of him. You don't need me to tell you about him. Listen, I'm going to go around the table here uh, with any plugs. Tim, have, what are you working on at the minute? Anything you want to plug for us tonight? Uh, well, if, um, if you speak Portuguese, I've got a new column coming out very soon for BBC Brazil. I write for them every, every couple of weeks. Um, I've, it's an opportunity to get away a little bit from football. So th- this, this new one is, uh, is, is about James Bond films. Um, which I hope people will enjoy if you if you read Portuguese. Uh, and what, what what I'm really looking forward to is um, next round of World Cup qualification. I'm kind of sorting out my travel plans. I haven't got that many things to boast about in life, but one of them is that um, Brazil and Argentina have played six times in World Cup qualification, and I've been in the stadium for all six. So uh, I want to be in there for number seven, November the 12th in Buenos Aires. Life's an absolute bitch. <laughs> you know, as I say, I, I'm... I'm Really hoping that I might get to one of those games some of these days. Um, as I say, just the, the sheer cost of travel down there at the minute is just ridiculous. Um, even with the, with the AI on, on, on the downward spiral, it's still kind of crazy. But as I say, it is my ambition. It's my ambition to get to the, to the River Baca match and, and to see um, a super classical as they call them here because they are just something else, I think, in, in terms of, of atmosphere and so on. It, it, it's a big thing down here. Listen, we have run completely out of time. As always, I could sit and listen to you forever, Tim, talk about Brazil because it's fascinating. And, and Some such people have to. Just feel sorry for him. Feel sorry for my yeah. family. Oh, well, no, not at all. I could sit and listen all day, mate. Absolutely. And, and, and just to say, thank you so much for appearing on this podcast. It, it's, it's, it, you've no idea what it means to us. We're, we're so humbled by your appearance. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Not at all. And, and the same to you, Mando, as usual. My, you know, it's great to have you back. And as I say, we're, we're hopefully we might even be doing another one in this series this week um, with, with another special guest. But that, well, we'll know a little bit better on Monday what we're going to do. Um, I'd just like to thank everyone for listening. Um, you know, it, we've, we're, we're certainly putting out some diverse content at the minute in WFI. Feel free to give us a mention, uh, give us a tweet out, mention us to your friends. We're only going to get bigger and better on, on, on this podcast. And from me, Dave Caron, all I've got to say, remaining to say is good night and thank you for listening. Goodbye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 